This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Good morning, please. In the Word of God to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. Reading from verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance." Do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear fruit is cast down and is thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier, <coughs> mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit on fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, gather up his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with, <clears throat> excuse me, unquenchable fire. Amen. Just let me take a little sip here, please. There are certain everyday words that we use. When we hear them or we speak them, uh, they uh, seem to strike a negative chord in our hearts and minds. And even though they will have a beneficial effect and ultimately be good for us, yet when we hear them, we immediately think, oh dear, I don't like the sound of that. It could be words like operation, surgery. You go to a doctor, he says, I'm sorry to tell you but we're going to have to operate. But, if he then says to you, but if we don't operate, then I'm afraid this is going to get so bad. In fact, it may prove fatal. Then suddenly, operation, surgery, doesn't sound so bad after all. If it's going to save your life, it's positive and it's good and you think of it differently. Words like discipline. We're going to have to discipline ourselves. Boy, that sounds like hard work, doesn't it? Not too sure I like that word. Or the word that strikes fear into every heart, diet. <laughs> That's a scary word, isn't it? <laughs> one man said he was in two diets because he couldn't get eat enough to eat in one diet, so he had to go on to two diets. <laughs> <laughs> There's some biblical words <clears throat> that also has that 
immediate negative connotation. Repentance. Repentance. When you hear that word repent, <clears throat> excuse me, or repentance, you think, oh dear, hmm, don't like the sound of that. That sounds negative. That sounds as if it's going to be costly. Of course it's negative. It is a negative word. But the consequences, the results that come from it are very beneficial and are very positive indeed. In fact, can be absolutely life-changing. I don't want to go into the word repentance in a tactical sense, but just in a very simple way, it basically just means, with reference to sin, it basically just means a turning away from sin and a turning unto God. At its simplest explanation, that's what it means, a turning away from sin and a turning unto God. It includes a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of attitude, a change of direction. I like what Francis Frangipan said of repentance. Do not despise repentance. Every season of significant spiritual growth in your walk with God will be precipitated by a time of deep repentance. Sometimes we will not go any further in our walk with God until and unless we repent of something. And when we do, then we move on in God. We move to another level, spiritually speaking. John the Baptist, as we see here, he came uh, preaching a message of repentance. In Luke chapter 1, and I'll be bouncing about a little bit in the scriptures this morning. In Luke chapter 1, <clears throat> you remember how Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, how he was a priest and it came to, it was his turn, as it were, to officiate at the temple of the burning of the incense. And when he did that, an angel appeared to him and gave him a tremendous message. And in verse 12, And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So you see that even before he was born, there was that prophetic announcement that his message would be one of repentance to turn people from the direction they're going into the direction that God wants them to go. And then again over in, in Matthew uh, 3, where he had just been there, actually. We see now and how that uh, John the Baptist now is beginning his ministry. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so that was his ministry, to make a way for the Lord, to prepare people for the Lord, not just to make men sorry for their sins and for their lifestyle, but to make men not just sorry for that, but to prepare them for the coming of the Lord. Now, if a road is going to be built, then obviously some clearing away has to take place. You know, maybe trees or boulders or rocks or shrubs or plants or whatever. And so there's a clearing away in order for that road to get from A to B, the direction it needs to be in. And if it's a motorway or something like that, sometimes land has to be vested from farmers. Or maybe dynamite has got to be used uh, if it's a rocky place. You know, whenever you go on that Newry Bypass, you see down the right-hand side, the rocks, the, those rocks, that had to be all dynamited for that road to go through. And so there's a lot of stuff in our hearts that has to be cleared away to make a way, to make a pathway to Christ and for Christ's pathway to us. And it's repentance that clears the way. It's repentance that makes that road to Christ and for Christ to come to us. And so John's ministry then was preparing people for Christ's coming, preparing them so that when Jesus came, they would be ready to receive him. And isn't it the truth that the common people heard him gladly? See, John had that ministry of repentance. And so repentance makes us ready to receive Christ, ready to receive his forgiveness to make his path straight it just doesn't make us sorry it makes us ready now again in in Matthew 3 and in verse 5 we read this earlier then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan confessing their sins But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, when when the religious establishment came, when they saw everybody else going, they didn't want to be left out. But John knew it was a pretense. He knew their hearts weren't in it. They just wanted to look good in front of the people because everybody was doing this and the people loved John the Baptist so they didn't want to be left on the sidelines but whenever they came, John realized they saw what their hearts were really truly like and he rebuked them very soundly indeed. Brood of vipers, that's strong language, isn't it? Why isn't that calling them snakes? And uh, of course in in Luke chapter 7, we see here in Luke chapter 7, verse 28 Jesus said for I say to you among those born of women there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist for he it is who at least he is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he and when all the people heard him even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves not having been baptized by him 
So John refused to baptize him because he knew that his message at heart was rejected. There is no point baptizing people who have never repented. If somebody said, you're only going to be a lot wetter, but no better. Until somebody truly repents, until there's fruit of repentance, until the life is changed, and it's evident that there is a change in life, because any man who is in Christ is a new creature. All things are passed away. All things have become new. So if that hasn't happened, then there's no fruit of repentance. Then why be baptized? It's not going to mean a thing. By the way, that's one of the reasons why we believe in adult baptism. So that people have that opportunity to repent, to come to Christ and be truly born again of God's Spirit. And then they're baptized. So well, there's no evidence of that. And so that was John the Baptist's ministry. He only had one sermon. That's all he had. He only preached one thing. He had only one string in his harp. And that was repentance. And the people heard it gladly. And they came in multitudes and droves to be baptized of John. It's such an impactful message that he preached that really moved and touched the hearts of people. Remember now for, for 400 years, there had been nothing from heaven. Heaven was silent. And suddenly here's this man coming thundering the message of repentance, waking the nation up again, but preparing the people for Christ that was to come, that they would be ready, that the soil of their heart would be ready to receive what Jesus was going to say. We saw in Matthew 3 there, 13 to 17, uh, that John pointed to Jesus to come and said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And uh, in Matthew chapter 4, After Jesus had been baptized by John, immediately the Spirit took him into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. And he came out of that in verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he departed to Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and those who sat in the region and, sh in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Note this. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we know that Jesus had more than one sermon. <laughs> we know that probably his greatest sermon was the Sermon on the Mount. But the very first thing, first and foremost in his preaching ministry was repent. He picked up where John left off. And so there was much repentance to be done. Even though John had prepared them to receive Christ, but his first message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so his ministry was, was wonderful. In Mark chapter 1, 
Verse 14, Now after John was put into prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so repentance was at the very heart of the ministry of Jesus. It's not a popular word today. In fact, there are those today who are teaching that grace is so wonderful and it's so powerful and it's so good that we as believers never ever need to repent again. That all of our sins, even our future sins, are already all forgiven, so why repent? That teaching has crept into the church in, in a major way in some places. How unfortunate. It was right at the very heart of Jesus' ministry and teaching and the apostles and disciples. In fact, in Matthew 11, Jesus expected and wanted to see repentance. Verse 20. And he began to rebuke the cities which most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. Woe unto you, Chorazin. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum. Capernaum was a place where he was based Capernaum's a place where he'd done many mighty miracles. And you, Capernaum, you who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done on you had been done on Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And so Jesus expected to see repentant hearts and what was so disappointing is the people who saw the most miracles were the least repentant on the whole as cities he rebuked not just a person but a whole city because they refused to repent they refused to change they were so set in their ways that even mighty miracles did not move them to repent. And Jesus said that it ought to. He says, if this had happened in Sodom, he says they would have long since repented. The city was still stood to this day. Matthew and Luke, sorry, Luke 24. And 44 to 49. You can read where between his resurrection and his ascension, between that period where he was with his disciples, again, he taught about repentance and to preach repentance. It was such a part of his ministry. And so as, as preachers and as churches, the word repentance is an important word. And it's a word that needs to be preached. You say, well, in Northern Ireland, that's all you ever hear about. We mommies placard up, repent. But actually, it's a very biblical word. 
It's a word that John used a lot. It's a word that Jesus used a lot. It's the word the disciples used a lot. And so it's a good word. It has a negative connotation because it requires change, change of heart, change of mind, change of direction, change of attitude. And it requires that. And that's why often we don't like that. And especially someone who's not a believer to know that they're going to have to change their whole lifestyle. And very often that's what keeps them from coming to Christ because they don't want to change their lifestyle. They don't want to, they want their own will and their own way and their own attitudes and their own actions. And they don't want to change. But they have to change because without repentance, there's going to be no salvation. And so Jesus was very careful to teach that. In Mark chapter 6, Verse 7. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. And he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you or hear you, when you depart from there, shake the dust under your feet. Shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out everywhere and they preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and, he, and healed them. But again, at the very heart of their message is this word, repentance, to get people to change. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The heart of the message of the apostles and the disciples was repent. And Peter's long sermon, the day of Pentecost, peppered with scriptures and prophetic statements. But when they asked him, what shall we do? He says, the first thing you've got to do is repent. Notice they were cut to the heart. They were moved. They were moved in their very hearts but that emotional moving was not enough. They still had to repent and to turn. You see, we can be emotionally moved when we hear a message, but we can walk out the door the same way as we come in because that emotional feeling can pass and dissipate. But repentance 
is something that we have to do, and it involves action, and it involves a change, a definite change. And that's what the disciples were saying. You're cut to the heart. What I've said has touched you, it's moved you, but now you've got to do this. You've got to repent. You've got to change your direction and change your way. You've got to turn to Christ. So the disciples' message was one of repentance. And in fact, in Acts 3, remember the story of the lame man? Verse 11, now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and determined, so, sorry, who you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God has raised from the dead, of which we are as witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given this man perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ would suffer, has been fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. And so when they ran together to see these men who had performed this great miracle, uh, Peter put everything into perspective. He says, well, actually, it, it was Christ who did this. But he says, now you need to repent. Now you need to change. Now you've got to do something with what you've seen today. It's not just enough to be moved. You've got to move. Not moved emotionally just, but moved directionally to do what Christ wants us to do. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, sorry, Acts 26, the Apostle Paul, he was giving his testimony before uh, King Agrippa. Verse 12, while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road I saw light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when all we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
But rise and stand of your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you, send you to do what? to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Hmm. To turn those from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. If there's a true repentance, we'll turn from darkness to light from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from Satan to God, if there's true repentance. It's that dramatic. It makes that big a difference. And of course, if that hasn't happened, then we need to say, am I truly saved? But when you see the change in your life and you know there's a change in your life and you know you're going a different direction and you know you want to follow the Lord, then you know that there's been a true and genuine uh, repentance. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is about to, to leave here in verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know that from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I have always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Gentiles, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's about to leave this area and he gathers these Ephesian elders. And the last word he says to them is about repentance towards God. It's at the very heart of his message. Yes, he taught about the resurrection. Yes, he taught about the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, he taught about the gifts of the Spirit. He taught about many, many things. But at the heart was this business of repentance. In Acts 17... Remember Paul in Athens? In verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through, considering the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Wherefore the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor does he worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell upon all the face of the earth, has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grow for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being." as also some of your own prophets have said, for we are also of his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly, 
these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. <laughs> yes, for a time he's all did it in ignorance, but you can't stay in ignorance. You've got to repent and change the direction that your life is going in. Why? Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. Second Corinthians chapter 12. I'm a bit like John the Baptist this morning. I'm, I'm harping in the one string, aren't I? Second Corinthians 12. And Paul writing in verse 20. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish and that I shall be found by you as you do not wish, lest there be contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath and selfish ambitions and backbitings and whisperings and conceits and tumults. This is church he's talking about, by the way. It's not the world out there. He's talking about church. Do so you think your stuff goes on at church today? There's always been. And this Corinthian church, there was a lot of it then. So he says, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness and the fornication, lewdness which they have practiced. And so Paul's speaking to the Ephesian elders, he's speaking to the Athenians, he spoke to the Romans, he's speaking to the Corinthians and in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he's writing to his prodigy, uh, young Timothy, Pastor Timothy. So in 2 Timothy 2, in verse 24, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses, and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. If God perhaps will grant them repentance. Repentance is a thing that God grants to us. He grants it to us. The ability, even the very desire to repent. God grants it to us. Isn't it interesting that Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, when he's standing in the midst of the seven churches, and he's a lot to say to each individual church, but for five of them out of the seven, five of them he tells to repent. Repent or else I will come and when you read that it's five out of the seven I wonder where that leaves us 
I wonder if he came today, right now, and had a message specifically for us as a fellowship. I wonder what it would be. There was only two that weren't required to repent. Smyrna, the persecuted church, and Philadelphia, the faithful church, the rest of them. He says, repent. And so that's Revelation. That's the last book of the Bible. So right across the whole New Testament particularly, there's that message of repentance. Repentance is like surgery, isn't it? It's like operation. We don't like to hear about it. But the truth of it is, if we do it, then it will be most beneficial. It will be positive. It will do something to us and in us that will change us. And all of us from time to time have opportunity to repent. I've had to do it. You've had to do it. Something we said, something we did, something we thought, a direction we were going that was wrong. And sometimes it's not even something bad, but it's a direction that God doesn't want us to go in. In and of itself, it may be okay, but it's taken us away from the will and purpose of God. And sometimes we have to repent of that and change and say, not my will, but yours be done. The title of this message is, by the way, The Blessing of Repentance. Because God meant it as a blessing in our lives. And when we do it, and you see the fruit of it, you'll be blessed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, let me just draw this to your attention. We'll be closed in a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is writing here to the Corinthians, a church that he loved dearly. A church that he just absolutely embraced. But he's on one of his missionary journeys. Word comes to him that all is not well in the Corinthian church. And all was not well. There was all kinds of stuff going on. They were terribly abusing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Terribly. It was like a competition between them. They were taking one another to court when they should have been dealing with things themselves in-house. They were coming to the Lord's table. Now, it wasn't like what we do today. It wasn't set out neatly like this. It was love feasts. And part of that fellowship supper they have together, they'd take a little time out with bread and wine to remember the Lord's death. But they were getting drunk. Some of them were actually getting drunk. And those who had plenty of money would bring lots of food. Those who had hardly anything weren't sharing it. I mean, it was ridiculous. There was all kinds of stuff going on. They, they had this thing about their favorite preachers. And they would argue and fight over who was their favorite preacher, whether Paul or Apollos or whoever. It was ridiculous. And worst of all, there was an incestuous relationship going on within the very church. Paul says it was that bodies that even made the pagans blush. 
I'm paraphrasing that, but that's what he meant. And so he writes a letter to them. Now, I remember he loves them. He writes a letter to them. And another thing, by the way, a year prior to this, they said to Paul that we're going to raise an offering and send it to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Now, this is a Gentile church going to sell to their Jewish brethren in Jerusalem, which would have been a wonderful thing to do. But the trouble was that was a year ago and that hadn't even started. And Paul sent Timothy to get this offering and he's a bit concerned about it because I haven't even raised it yet. And so he writes 1 Corinthians. And it's a very stern letter. I mean, it's a, he really tears strips off it. He really, really goes to town on it. But then when he does it, he thinks, hmm, I wonder, maybe I've been a bit harsh there. Maybe I've been a bit hard on them. So, so let's just read this to see what he says. Verse 1 of chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comfort us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation by, with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So, He's writing now the second time because he's got some response from his first letter. Titus has told him, when I went there, this is what had happened. For even, listen to this, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Is he contradicting himself? No. He's simply saying, listen, when I wrote that letter and I sent that, as soon as I sent it, I thought, do you know what? That was very, very hard. That was really tough. I wonder how they'll handle this. I mean, I wonder will they be able to deal with this because I'm really, really sending very strong stuff here. So, so he, he almost had like second thoughts, but that didn't last very long. Listen to what he said. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry Though only for a while, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Not that you were, not that it really upset you and made you sorry and made you feel bad, but it led to repentance. That's the good thing. It was negative, really was. It was tough, it was hard to hear and to receive, but they did. They heard it and they received it. So he says, not that I rejoice that you were, not that you were made, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Ah. There's a godly sorrow that produces life. 
leads to salvation, deliverance. But there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death because it doesn't change the direction of somebody's life. They can be sorry, but unchanged in their direction. They can be sorry, but not really repent. Uh, let me give you an example of that. And we're about to close. In Matthew chapter 27, let us compare two people in closing. There's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. There's the sorrow of this world that leads to death. Let's compare Judas and Peter. First of all, Judas, Matthew 27. And when the morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the silver in the temple and departed, and he went and hanged himself. Something happened to Judas after he betrayed Jesus that made him remorseful. He realized, I've done a bad thing. He knew that Jesus was innocent before he ever betrayed him. He's admitting that now. But the argument of why, why he betrayed him, we know that Satan had entered into him as he went out from the Last Supper. So we know with the motivation that Satan was prompting him. But could it be, I don't know, I'm just saying, could it be that maybe, remember he was a treasure, he held the bag. And remember he was the greedy one. He was the one who complained the most when Jesus was being anointed by the woman with oil. Could that have been sold and sold for so much and given to the poor? Not that he cared for the poor, but that he held the bag. So he was dipping into the bag. He was stealing from the financial coffers of the ministry team. Could it be that maybe he thought, if I betray Jesus for a certain amount and they go to arrest him, he'll do what he has done in the past. Because remember, they took him up to the brow of the hill and they wanted to throw him over the hill. And what happened? He just walked through them in the midst and they couldn't do a thing. And maybe he thought, if I betray him and get the money, then he'll, he'll escape. He's done it before. He could do it again. In fact, whenever they said, when Jesus said to the soldiers who came, whom are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. What happened? They all fell down. Such was the power of that. Maybe he maybe thought at that point, well, he can just walk away now. But Jesus didn't walk away. Jesus didn't walk away. He could have. He could have. He could have slain all of them. But he didn't. He allowed himself to be arrested and taken 
and to be taken to the cross. I don't know. That's just pure speculation on my part. That's not a doctrine. Pure speculation. But something happened when he saw Jesus going to Pilate and saw him being condemned. I have betrayed innocent blood. But he was full of remorse because he realized how bad he looked. Even those very elders of the temple didn't even want that money back again. They wanted nothing to do with him. And he was full of remorse. He felt a sorrow. But it didn't lead to repentance. In fact, he went out and hung himself. But what about Peter? Did Peter not betray Jesus too? Yes, he didn't sell him for 30 pieces of silver. Yes, he didn't get him arrested. But he did, not, did he not betray him? Did he not deny him three times? Yes, and the guard was arrested. And in the heat of the moment, and the impulse of the moment, he took out his sword and wanted to fight. But when it came down to the trial, he became a card, didn't he? And he hid in the shadows, and he's skulking in the shadows. And he denied Jesus three times. He betrayed him three times. He had the opportunity to stand with him, and he didn't. And it tells us that in just a few verses in the chapter before chapter 26. If I had to read it, and Peter outside in the courtyard, uh, sat outside in the courtyard, and the servant guard came to him saying, you were also with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're saying. And when he had gone out of the gateway, another guard saw him and said to those who were with him, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you're also one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he said, Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, he will deny me three times. Note this. So he went out and he wept bitterly. He was deeply, deeply sorrowful. But it led to somewhere, didn't it? It led to repentance. He was ashamed. He was humiliated. He was embarrassed to death. He knew what he had done. It was awful. He had denied Christ. He had betrayed him. He wept. His heart was broken. But it led him to repentance. And Jesus brought him back into the fold, didn't he? Because he had truly, truly repented. He was a different man after this. He was never the same man after that incident. Why? Because repentance changed him. And Christ took that repentant heart and changed it and made him a mighty man of God. Last scripture and then we're closing. Romans chapter 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. In other words, if you're doing something and you're condemning somebody for doing the thing that you're doing, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. 
And do you think, O oh man, you who judge the practicing, you, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? By the way, in context, uh, Paul's saying that to Jews. Because the Jews felt really they didn't need to repent of anything because they were God's chosen people. And even when Jews became believers, they still had this haughty attitude. We're God's chosen people, you know. We're special to him, so we don't have to repent. You Gentiles, you can repent for what you do. Paul says, but wait a minute, you're doing the same things. Ah, but we don't need to repent because we're, we're Jews. And, and we believe in the Messiah now, so we don't need to repent. No, no, he says, no. You do the same thing, you need to repent also. He says, do you not know the goodness of God leads to repentance? When he's talking about the goodness of God, listen to what he says, forbearance and long-suffering. God putting and hold the judgment. God being patient and long-suffering with us not wanting us to perish, as Peter said, not willing that any man should perish, but all should come to repentance. So he says, God in his goodness, and his forbearance, God in his patience, God putting off judgment, giving you opportunity to repent and to be sorry and to say that to God. That's, that's, what it that's the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Sometimes you wonder, why does God allow certain people to get away with things? Why does he let them go on and go on and go on? He's given them opportunity to repent. He's holding his judgment back. God is holding all of his judgment back right now on this earth. <laughs> this earth needs to be judged by God, and it will be one day, but right now he's holding it back. Why? Because he wants people to repent. That's his forbearance. That's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. So today, the heart of the very gospel message that we love is repentance. And it's a positive thing. It's a good thing. And it keeps us on the right path with the Lord. And as unbelievers, it causes us to be able to make that pathway to him to get that stuff set aside so we can make a beeline for Jesus so that Jesus has got an entrance into our life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your mercy is extended towards us. We bless you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, Lord, that you granted us repentance. Thank you for your long-suffering, your tender mercies, for your forbearance and your patience with us. Lord, for many of us, Lord, it was years before we came to you, and yet in your mercy you waited, and you won us to yourself. And so we thank you today for repentance. We thank you that it blesses us and it helps us and it moves us to another level in Christ Jesus. So we give you thanks today in his name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.